From the hills of central New York and in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. It's American football season here in the U.S. My guest on this episode of Frankly Speaking is Dr. Andrew McNitt of Penn State University, where he's been serving the turfgrass industry for more than 30 years. He's a professor of soil science in the Department of Crop and Soil Sciences at Penn State University, where he develops research information and then devises practical recommendations for athletic field managers throughout the United States. In 2008, Andy initiated the Penn State Center for Sports Surface Research, where he and his graduate students published research results related to field surface characterization. He's the technical advisor to the National Football League and part of and coordinates the NFL Game Day Certification Program. In 2014, he was awarded the Pennsylvania Turfgrass Council's Dr. George Hamilton Distinguished Service Award. As with all our Frankly Speaking episodes, we are grateful to our partners at Dryject and Intelligent. Welcome to Frankly Speaking, Professor Andy McNitt. What a joy uh, for us to get to chat publicly about uh, this really cool topic that I've been fascinated with, much to the chagrin, as we've already agreed, uh, to maybe some of our colleagues studying uh, synthetic turf and, of course, your work in natural turf as well. Andy, I want to start our conversation basically with how did we see sports turf safety evolve from where you started back? you know, 25, 30 years ago when you're an extension agent and then, you know, your education at Penn State. Early on, I think all we had was maybe the the work that Trey did dropping the clegg with Don Waddington many years ago on hardness and things like that. Where did we start from and, and where are we now with sort of sports turf safety stuff? Well, first, Frank, let me say it's a pleasure and an honor to, to be on here with you. It's always uh, lots of fun talking with you. Okay. So where did it start? Well, my predecessor, Don Waddington, uh, sort of had this idea of we need to characterize sports fields. And he said to me in like 1986, he said, you know, Andy, someday these fields are going to have to be certified before people can play on them. And everybody thought, well, certified? What are you talking about? And that it took 30 years for that to happen. Mm-hmm. But uh, now, you know, every NFL field has to be certified prior to every game. Mm-hmm. And it's trickling down uh, to lower levels as well. You know, in the early days, you know, we could measure hardness and we could measure some of these characteristics, but we had very little to compare it to. The other problem when you did a study back then was that you know, there's so much variability, you know, it is a good natural grass field better than a good synthetic field? Is a good synthetic field better than a bad natural field? And so we know that, you know, both of these systems, but particularly natural grass, you know, those characteristics change hour to hour to hour. And so trying to kind of control all that and get really uh, statistically significant data out of it and have some standard to compare it to was a long time coming and it took a lot of research and and help from biomechanics people, et cetera. Right. And, and, you know, I remember Remember the publication Jack Harper did, and of course we didn't throw his name out there. I think that's his name, right? Jack Harper. Oh publication? yeah, Jack Harper and Waddington were both authors on that, and that was done in the early eighties. And you know they they found that twenty percent of injuries were field related, and just doing a survey in high school and. Shockingly, that number is pretty accurate even today. Hmm. You know, 80% of injuries in football are person-to-person contact. But somewhere in that neighborhood of 20% uh, are related to the field. So it's amazing how that stood up over the years. It is. And, of course, what's improved is the technology to measure. And you wonder if those guys could have imagined the things we're using now. Um, I know we're still dropping a hammer. 
I believe we've got some kind of rotational force, you know, field device, but you, of course, got the pen foot. Talk a little bit about the way you go about or the way when an NFL field is certified, if you're able to, what are the tests that are being taken to ensure or to measure these performance characters? Right. So there's a lot of things that go into certifying a field beyond just you know, hard, how the player interacts. You know, they've got to make sure all the valve covers are covered with a material that will still clegg under 100. And we'll talk about, you know, the clegg is a missile that you drop on the field. It has an accelerometer on it, and it kind of measures how quickly that missile or weight stops upon impact. I think Jim Brosnan, when he was a grad student here, characterized it well. He said, if you can imagine dropping a weight on a mattress, it sort of stops slowly, as compared to dropping it on concrete, it stops very quickly. And so that's really what that accelerometer measures, is how quickly that uh, weight stops upon impact. And then there's a relationship between that value and the potential for some uh, head injury to occur? Well, uh, yes and no. So here's what the biomechanics people are telling me, that the weight we're dropping with any of these devices that we measure, it doesn't matter if it's the hemispherical missile that they use in playgrounds. It doesn't matter if it's the F-355, which was the old synthetic turf standard, was still a synthetic turf standard, or the CLEG. None of these are even close to the, the level of impact of a player's head hitting the surface. I mean, that is magnitudes higher. That impact is so much greater. So really what we do is we look at this as a maintenance tool um, on, in football. You're, you're sort of saying, listen, if you're taking care of this field, it should read under 100, right? Mm-hmm. And if you're not taking care of the field, it's probably going to be over 100. But we can't necessarily relate that directly to head injuries or really any injuries at this point in time specifically to a helmeted player. It's really a maintenance measure and that we don't have great on-field measuring devices that will tell you what that injury rate is. So they're not necessarily correlating, but the concept is, is that if you're maintaining the field, it's likely going to be a safer field. And so firmness, of course, is not only going to affect when something hits on it, but to a certain extent, it could also affect traction. So you're measuring traction in some way? So we measure traction. Um, you know, I've been measuring traction with what we called the pen foot, which was, it's funny, I was a grad student, and we sort of named it that as a joke because of all the pen varieties, <laughs> right? It was pen cross and, and pen links and pen eagle. And so, we, hey, we ought to call this pen foot. And it was kind of a joke, and now it's in the scientific literature, and everybody knows it as it's pen so foot, great. so that name. Love and that. then, uh, you know, some people will capitalize every letter, which is almost embarrassing. Uh, so we did that, and at the time, in like 1992, when we developed that, the whole deal was to get a portable machine out there to try to get loading weights that were higher than the other portable machines. So our machine will go up to like 325 pounds. Mm-hmm. And so it was slightly revolutionary in the early 90s because nobody else had a portable device that was giving loading weights anywhere near that. Mm-hmm. The biomechanics people now, uh, and I work with uh, Richard Kent, sort of leads this effort for uh, the NFL out of University of Virginia. Mm-hmm. You know, he's telling me that an NFL player, you should be at three to four times body weight. So he invented a device that has like a 24, 2500 pound downward force. And it is really not very portable. I mean, they took it out in the field and we, they did some tests with it a number of years ago just to make sure that what they were doing in the lab was, was um, reasonable. 
but uh, it's not very portable. So one of our goals now is to design some kind of a portable device that can go out and uh, and measure that. And Dr. Sirach at University of Tennessee is working on that and has a device maybe that's more portable. But we want one that you can kind of put in a suitcase, yeah. right, and get on yeah. a plane and fly somewhere, and every NFL guy can walk around with it. Yeah, and so, and you know when I'm when I'm teaching uh, you know my my turf class here, and and we go through our sports turf uh, section of the class. I've got a bunch of those uh, torque wrenches. Now, nobody thinks that's ideal or really can be correlated to anything, at least yet. Well, which which one are you using? We're using sort of the Eagle Camp one they talked about, which is a series of fins. Yeah. And it has a torque wrench on the top. That's the one. It. That's the one. So we use that in the NFL. Oh, you do? Uh, yes, but we don't use it to say that it, it relates to traction. What we're looking there for there is just surface stability and whether the sod has worn out to the point that um, we need to remove the sod. Huh. So we track those numbers and we watch the difference between as the sod wears out and then a resod happens and, of course, the torque numbers go up. Mm-hmm. And so we're trying hard to come up with a, an equation, but that equation that will predict the need for resod um, is stadium-specific mm-hmm. because of, one, the sod, even though a number of stadiums might use the same sod, but the soil, the, the microenvironment, everything else. So it takes a while to collect that amount of data and that many resods to be able to come up with a formula that can be applied, but and that's what we're working on now. But that's a, yeah, that's a surface stability thing. It's okay. not traction, okay. and I don't want to confuse anybody with so, that. So to a certain extent, it's, it's more that when a foot gets planted – what it's going to take for it to shear? Yeah, it's more of a playability kind of thing. You might think of it that way. Huh. Yes, it's um, so uh, it's not really a safety issue. It's that uh, the field has become too loose now and the players can't perform as opposed to uh, it's so tight that the player's going to get injured. It's kind of the opposite end of the spectrum on playability. And so the idea there is, um, you know, in the future, we might be able to say, hey, it's time that you guys resaw it. And I know you don't want to, but it's time to anyway. But for the most part, because of these um, uh, standards that have been invented and, and applied, resods are happening more often. The quality of fields in the last 10 to 15 years in the NFL has grown leaps and bounds. Oh, my goodness. And, and, and of course, it highlights, um, and, you know, you decide um, how you want to answer this, but it certainly highlights when... Uh, in Mexico, uh, you know what happened. Obviously, to the naked eye, you could look at the field that they were going to play down in Mexico City, I believe. And to the naked eye, you could say, wow, this doesn't seem like a lot of grass on there. We don't need to get into the whys and wherefores of that. But I would imagine that's a fairly easy number to get on a field like that, which then would nullify a field like that. And those athletes obviously didn't play on that field. (laughs) I think about it from a high school perspective. You know how many fields I'm sure you and I both visit with our kids years ago, where if you put that device on there (laughs) and you had to have a standard for the way it was, there's probably a fair amount of fields that we play on that that device could be handy. Oh, sure. Uh, I think the Clegg would be first because you look at its surface hardness, which tells you something about the field. Um, secondarily, you know, shear resistance does uh, inform you of uh, a playability. Again, not necessarily a safety issue, but more of a playability. Right. So, yeah, I mean, there's some high school fields out there. Everybody, you know, like wants to talk about synthetic versus natural. And my whole point is it doesn't matter which surface you have. You better maintain it. And both of them need maintenance, and either of them can become a problem if you don't maintain them. So I've seen natural grass fields that clegg well over 200, Hmm. uh, and I've seen um, synthetic turf fields that clegg, you know, 40. So there's a big range out there, and I think one of the big messages that has to go out there is synthetic turf is not 
maintenance-free. And I'm, I'm really pleased to see that over the, over the last five, six, ten years, I think the message is, is beginning to come out with the synthetic turf folks. I think they've begun to admit that, hey, you know what, these do take a certain level of maintenance to keep them up to to par and uh, and make sure that they're a good playing surface for any athlete. Yeah, and of course, I'm sure with your sort of historical knowledge of this, that to a certain extent, some of that's got to be related to the the expansion of the infilled systems, where where the rubber and the matrix, whatever that matrix is, whether it's rubber and sand, is subject to the same compacting forces or dis- or or distrib- you know distributive forces that cause it to move away uh, when you plant yeah. a foot. That it just inherently it makes sense that that's probably one of the reasons that the idea of even maintaining these things has become more. Well, prevalent. I think so. I, but uh, everybody sort of thinks that the reason synthetic turf fields get hard is compaction. Huh. You know, I wish it was compaction because that's so easy to fix. We're pretty good at relieving compaction, huh. right? You know, we're using pretty uniform. The, this the industry's using pretty uniform crumb rubber and pretty uniform sand, and we've begun to track that now uh, and make sure that we know what everybody's using and and how and you know we're trying to play around with research on how that affects things. But it, but it's really not compaction; it's walk off crumb hmm. rubber. So we, you know we know that the mothers complain about uh, crumb rubber being found in the washing machine, right? And they're dragging it around, and you go in the locker room, and you'll find crumb rubber. And so that crumb rubber is one of the main cushioning properties of the system. And as it slowly leaves the field, your crumb rubber gets thinner and thinner and thinner, and thus the field gets harder and harder and harder. So one of the main maintenance practices that I'm glad to see more people doing now is top-dressing synthetic turf infill systems. When we started this process in the NFL, there was only one synthetic turf field in the NFL that was being routinely top-dressed or even monitored, and now everybody does that. They have to meet that standard every week. Uh, target levels are set with a variation of uh, you know, plus four millimeters and minus two off the target, and so they have a six-millimeter range that every location on that field, whether it's an inlay, a seam, a clear out to the media line, every field or every spot on that field has to be within that range. Well, l- listen, we're going to have, I want to have a little more conversation about synthetic turf, but before we go to break, I want to talk about that same concept in natural turf. And, you know, you turn on the TV and you, you see the NFL, the natural grass fields too, uh, that are, are fortunate enough to most of them, I'm sure, are all sand-based. They most are, of them have heat or hydronics or, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they're, they top dress to different amounts. It's, it's, it seems like with the emerging way we're starting to manage the synthetics, Where's natural turf management? It just, you know, when I look at what Alan Johnson does up in Green Bay, for example, just to pick him out because I'm a Packer fan, and it looks so great in December, you know, I know he's top dress in that field. Isn't it great when you get a natural field that's managed to its highest standards? And I got to believe you wish more and more fields that you see that don't have the luxury of being at Lambeau, but the sort of everyday natural fields is probably a few things that management wise they should be doing that they're not doing that could really make those natural fields better. I guess I want you to talk a little bit about how good are the natural fields. The natural fields in the NFL or the natural fields in high school yeah. or college or <laughs> well let's do the NFL. Yeah, so fields. I think they're I think that they've come a long way, right? Um the uh the beauty of a natural grass field is it has the ability to divot and synthetic turf doesn't mm-hmm. divot and 
and that's where probably the in, the injuries are occurring, right? Because it doesn't divot. But the fear of every NFL superintendent is that it's going to be too much divots. We're going to start seeing beaver pelts come up, or you're going to get big bubbles or pushes, and guys are going to start falling down. So the trick is is to keep that playing quality between that envelope, right? It's got to have enough traction mm-hmm. that it um, that it holds up, and the players can make their maneuvers, and the game can go on and look good. But it can't be so tight that injuries occur. So there's an envelope that's created, and every surface we try to get in inside that envelope. So yeah, they're doing they're doing amazing things. What what has happened with the NFL though is that because uh, the demand for quality is so much higher, and because of the event load, I don't think people appreciate just how great the event load is in these stadiums. I mean, there are concerts. There's the Fraternal Order Police playing the the firemen. There's high school games. There's right. picnics. You know, there's camping events for Girl Scouts. I mean, it's amazing what all goes into that stadium. Uh, and the desire for, you know, high-quality turf every Sunday when the lights come up has pushed to the point that um, they resawed frequently, and there's no other option. Mm-hmm. Um, they, no matter what you do, uh, most of these fields that are getting serious um, event load, they've got to resawed. So, if we're laying down sod mid-season, and we have some stadiums that do it four times during the season, you're going to lay that down and play on it sometimes in less than a week. Um, mm-hmm. And so what happens is the management has to move from the stadium back to the sod farm. You're just not buying any old sod off the shelf any longer. Mm-hmm. You're buying sod that's being maintained at a different mowing height. It's being top-dressed. It's being treated with growth regulators. Uh, might be verticut. Um, all of those things are happening at the sod farm so that you can pick that up and lay it down and play on it days later. Yeah, put a line on it and play on it. And it and right. to the athlete and to your measurements, it performs like a field that's been there the whole time. Sure. Yep. Hmm. And everybody says, what about rooting? And we, you know, we almost don't care about rooting any longer. It roots and it does well. Uh, practice fields, we care about rooting. But, you know, on stadium fields, we don't have time for it to root. So it's being laid and played on. Yeah. And eight weeks later, it's being taken out and, and new sods put in again. So We have just begun our conversation. I'm with Professor Andy McNitt at Penn State University. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. We'll be right back. Golf course superintendents all agree. Traditional core aeration is time-consuming labor-intensive, and unpopular with golfers. Dryject is a revolutionary service that relieves compaction, increases water infiltration, improves gas exchange, and amends your root zone all at the same time, leaving the turf surface smooth and immediately playable. Best of all, an independent Dryject service professional does it for you, there and gone before you know it. Dryject, the only process in the world that aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass. Visit dryject.com to locate your nearest dryject service center. Finally, a fungicide that's so much more. Civitas Turf Defense is a fungicide, insecticide, and plant protection product that will change the way you look at turf management. Civitas Turf Defense works within the plant to control diseases and pests, reducing requirements for fertilizers and other pesticides. By enhancing stress tolerance, Civitas Turf Defense can reduce water inputs by up to 25% while maintaining acceptable turf quality. Civitas also increases abiotic stress tolerance for improved tolerance to wear in traffic. And with no known resistance issues, there's no worry about maximum yearly application restrictions. Civitas Turf Defense, plant protection redefined. 
There's more to the story. Visit CivitasTurf.com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. Andy, we finished up with you outlining this sort of lay and play, this instant sod idea. And boy, do I see such a demand for that, not even just in athletics. But, you know, I do a fair amount of work in, in Manhattan and in New York City where Bryant Park, they're laying sod all the time, Central Park, Madison Square Park, where they have events and they need people to walk on them right away. This development of, of the use of natural grass for those purposes is, is really spectacular. So major kudos for doing that. But I, I want to switch to the thing you brought up about natural turf that I really hadn't realized. And you said you were doing divoting research on natural grass. And I want to talk a little bit about that for a second. So it's like we like natural grass because it gives. Hmm? It seems like you like it because it gives. And we haven't been able to design these synthetic surfaces so that they necessarily give the same way. So I know from paying attention to your work for a really long time that that's just not the surface issue. I want to talk about the shoe thing because obviously there's two parts of this thing, three parts when you put the... 2,400 pound weight. You got to put on a shoe to test it. I had no idea that was that much force, but nevertheless, what about the shoes? You release something through the sports uh, surface center, you and Tom Sorrentis, and you've been doing it for years, I think, evaluating shoes. I know you are very careful. You say, well, there really isn't any way to say a shoe is good or bad or safe or not safe. You got to sort of design it for the way you are. And I'm good with that. Uh, it is frankly speaking. So I'll bug you a little bit about, you know, pushing you there. But talk a little bit about the role of the footwear here, Andy, and, and really the evolution of the thinking on that. Right. So one thing about that 2,400 loading weight, that's for a big NFL player. I mean, you don't make the NFL because of necessarily how much you can bench press. You make the NFL because it's how fast you can move a big body. And when that big body's moving and it wants to move in a different direction and they plant that foot, you know, the forces are crazy. So the the loading weight there is is a little bit unique. The pen foot that we use is a little lower loading weight and might be more applicable to, you know, grade school kids, even junior high and so forth. So, you know, what has happened in the evolution of shoes, and I'm not taking credit for any of this, but I mean, it, it's now looked at as a piece of safety equipment. And we're actually beginning to see some marketing around that. The NFL believes that the the shoe selection is the low-hanging fruit here. There are shoes out there that will perform great on just about any NFL surface, whether it's synthetic or natural. And there's other ones that look potentially dangerous on synthetic Mm -hmm. turf. And so they have their own ranking. You can find that on the web. You can find it on my website. We have a link to that poster for the 2,400-pound players. Mm -hmm. What we're doing is looking at a lower level of player with a less loading weight and trying to rank the shoes as well. And there's some correlation, but occasionally you see some funny things where a shoe will pop uh, here or there. So I'd like to increase awareness that the number one thing that trainers, parents, athletes, and coaches can do is make appropriate shoe selection. It's the easiest thing you can do to try to lower lower extremity injuries. But but it didn't seem to I was looking at the just the variance in them, right? Mm-hmm. How you tested them. And sometimes they spread out pretty wide and sometimes they don't. It looked like the surface uh you know, you did one for Bermuda and field turf and bluegrass. That was sort of cool. But there didn't seem to be, I mean, do you just put the shoe on and run around? And if it feels like you slip a little bit, that's good? No. Uh, and players hate that, right? What you do is you just look at the ranking. And our ranking, you want to pick one at the bottom third. And we have that sort of labeled as green. Right? You have green, yellow, and red. And you want to stay away from the red ones. 
Huh. And so you want to try to pick the green ones, and that's going to put you into a position where you're going to have less likely to have foot stickage. So I think that was really smart that uh, the shoe got labeled as a piece of safety equipment. And so it seems obvious, but I'm sure you're going to correct me on it. If I'm a big player and I'm playing a lot of games on synthetic turf, it seems like I want inherently a low traction shoe because I'm going to be heavy and I don't know if I need a three-quarter spike to go in that thing that's not going to give. But what I find is funny, and I remember this from when Ian Shivers did some survey work many years ago with the Australian football players. They tended to want to play on surfaces that were more likely to cause some injury. They sort of liked the high traction. They sort of liked the ability to cut dramatically. And, you know, this is back in the day when they thought there was difference between ryegrass and Bermuda grass in Australia. Remember that work? From, well, there's, there think, is. <laughs> yeah. No, there is. Okay. You know. Okay. Yeah, rye, ryegrass a lot slipperier than Bermuda. So, so what about that? Yeah. So here's the deal: is that it's it's an ongoing process in trying to get players into those shoes, right? For superstition reasons, for they just like the look of them, you well, know, whatever the reason. Uh, the league has not been able to sort of force everybody into these safer shoes. It's an educational process, and some have adopted it, but there seems to be resistance, just as you sort of brought up. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know what that reason is. I'll philosophize here for a little bit. But, you know, these professional athletes are supermen, right? I mean, from the time they were kids. And and they're worried more about, you know, getting cut from the team than they are about getting an injury. And that's complete speculation on my part, Mm -hmm. because I think every individual makes their selection. Sure. So I think it's an education process that has to occur. And so that is ongoing. And I want to sort of bring that down to the high school level. Right. That making proper cleat selection is the best thing you can do to improve your chances of not getting a lower extremity injury. And it seems to me that the sort of vanity aspect is is a part of footwear, right? A lot of these guys have uh, personalized shoes sometimes for events sure. and different things. And, you know, young players, I've been out soccer cleat hunting with my son, and it certainly is, oh, I sort of like the way that one looks and puts it mm-hmm. on, and then he sort of likes that one better. So this is very interesting and important for it to be looked at as a piece of safety equipment rather than a piece of uh, sort of the uniform that can be different colors and not really affect uh, much else. So fi- filtering it down to younger folks, they can look at your data and say, hey, you know, this bottom third that's in the green, this is probably a good place to choose the footwear. And you've done a good enough job of sort of saying, yeah, they perform different on different surfaces. Are there shoes that are specifically designed just for artificial turf versus natural turf? Well, there have been, uh, and whether or not there was research behind every one of those selections is a little blurry. But more so now, yes, you're seeing major shoe companies come out and say, you know, this is sort of their, it's just beginning. This is a synthetic turf shoe that the league likes, they like, and and they want to promote. So if you pick one from the bottom third, you can still get any color you want, right? (laughs) I mean, it's funny how we pick out cleats, right? right. Nobody can look at a cleat pattern and go, hey, you know, that one doesn't look safe. (laughs) Nobody thinks like that, right? It's just, oh, that kind of looks cool, and I like the color, and I like the way it feels. And so we're just trying to put some science behind that and, and put some numbers on there so that we have make more informed consumer decisions. And, and before we uh, get to the second part of our discussion with regard to natural and synthetic surfaces, injuries and like that, how much of just uh, since we philosophized a little bit, let's take a minute and talk about the role that litigation has played in sort of driving some of this whole thing. Now, certainly you don't need a Ph.D. like I have or you have to know the NFL certainly is mindful of that. 
How much do you see this filtering down into the high school level, collegiate level? I'm really feeling like in some ways, some communities, we can't get them to pay enough attention. They just simply are not putting their athletes on fields I I think are are safe sometimes. And maybe it's only 20, 30 percent of the time as all that data shows. But boy, I wish it was even less than that uh, related to the field because they're really you should be able to manage it. How much of what's driving litigation at one level you see starting to filter down to the other levels? So it's happening, and I, you know, I, I've been expecting this sort of wave for the last 20 years that it has really just been, you know, a little bit of a trickle. Mm-hmm. But you are seeing it, and I think it's picking up, and there's a certain awareness of it. But and it, the problem that you have is it's very difficult on one incident and one person and one field to be able to sort of deem that that injury occurred because of the field. I mean, it takes you know high speed video, and you have to. There's a lot that goes into it, and nobody. You know, I get called, hey, will you be an expert witness for lawsuits, which I don't do, so nobody call me. Um, <laughs> That's good. So, uh, yeah. You know, and the question is, well, what were the field conditions? And it turns out, you know, this injury happened 18 months ago. And I said, did you collect any data from the field? No. You know, we just want to prove that the field was unsafe because of whatever reason they want to give. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of data that has to be collected to sort of definitively say that field was the cause of the problem. I think we're seeing more money being spent on athletic fields at the lower levels than we did before. Certainly we are at the higher levels. Mm-hmm. You know, this testing program uh, that happened at the NFL, one of the great benefits that happened was almost immediately more resources were being put into the fields. Mm-hmm. And so it also sort of rose the level of the uh, groundskeeper, mm-hmm. right? All of a sudden now there's numbers to look at. Whether or not those numbers are meaningful, there's numbers to look at. And so, hey, how do the, how do the numbers look this week? You know, what are we doing? Mm-hmm. Uh, we want to make sure that, you know, we're looking good and, and whatever it takes to make that happen. Yeah. So do I see that trickling down to the lower level? Yes, slowly. I mean, it's a slow drip, but it is coming. So, you know, the deal with high schools is, you know, everyone says there's no money there. There's no money there. We can't buy fertilizer. I can't get another mower. But then three quarters of a million dollars drops out of the sky to put in a rug, right? So there is money there, obviously. It's just not appropriated in the right way. And I kind of get it from the high school administrators. This is not their world. They don't think about it like we do. What do they think about? Listen, we now have so many events on that stadium field that scheduling becomes a huge issue. And I think part of it's been the advent of soccer. I mean, when I went to high school, you know, you had ninth grade, JV, and varsity football on that game field in the fall. So that was one and a half games a week because the other one and a half were being played away, right? Mm -hmm. And that was the only activity you had there. Now we've got seventh grade football, eighth grade football. For me, seventh and eighth grade football was played at 3.30 on a practice field, and there were maybe five parents there. Now it's at the game field at 7 o'clock at night Mm because, you know, the boosters can sell a hot dog and everybody can watch it. And then we also have, you know, junior high soccer, men's and women's, uh, JV soccer, men's and women's, and um, varsity soccer, men's and women, all put on this field. So your athletic director has a jam schedule. And if it rains and there's a rain out, you know, that guy has to go find an open date for that field that both his team and the other team, they're open as well. So it becomes this scheduling nightmare. And the last thing they want to think about is rain games. And so they throw money at a natural grass field. And usually, you know, God bless them. There's great architects at high schools, and they're fantastic with the buildings and the parking lot and the HVAC system. But they don't know how to build an athletic field. They don't know how to spec it. 
and they think, well, we were successful growing grass out here next to the, you know, that's all there is to it, right? <laughs> and so the architects will spec this, and then I know for a fact, because I've been consulting on a number of high school fields over the years, they don't want to send that contract outside the district. You know, there's guys inside the district that have lots of iron, and they know how to build a parking lot, and that's what you get for your varsity football field. So after a while, the administrator's saying, hey, we've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars trying to make this field better, and it isn't better. So they throw up their hands and say, hey, I can put a rug in here and I got a guarantee for eight years. Mm -hmm. And I think that at the high school level, they need to start thinking differently. Use your local architect. He can do the permitting, right? And he can do some of those logistics. But then for the last 20% when the field is actually built, have that guy sub it out to a landscape architect who knows what they're doing on building athletic fields. And the same with the construction. The big earth moving, maybe moving a water main so that you have irrigation, that can be done by your local guy. But that last 15 to 20% should be done by a contractor who has great experience building an athletic field. And then once the field is built, it needs to be maintained. And so in-house maintenance is poor sometimes. Sometimes it's great. A lot Mm -hmm. of times it's poor Mm -hmm. because they don't have the knowledge. It's not that they don't care and they don't try, but they need some knowledge. And, And so... You know, start hiring kids right out of college. They're hungry to make a name for themselves. They're not mm-hmm. that expensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they might only last there four or five years, mm-hmm. uh, and then they're going to move on to make a name for themselves somewhere else, but then you hire another one in. The other thing that I like to talk about is this lay-in-place thought. I mean, we're beginning to see this at the college level, and I think you're going to see it at the high school level. You need a guarantee for natural grass, right, that we don't have for synthetic. So if we have a natural grass guarantee, what does that look like? How much does it cost to put lay-in-place sod down on a field two-thirds of the way through the season, which is, I think, when it should go down? Mm -hmm. You put one down two-thirds of the way through the season, you finish out the season in the playoffs if you happen to have it uh, on a really good field, and then you've got the spring and summer to kind of rehab that field to go into the next year. And maybe you don't have to do that every year, but what does that cost? $100,000, 120 it all depends on how close you are to the sod farm, right? Right. And, and trucking costs. Yeah. And so how long is a synthetic turf field guaranteed for? Eight years. It's $750,000. Mm-hmm. The numbers are not as crazy as people think they are. Well, that's right. And let me say further, I was on a local school board for nine years, and I watched the way the state of New York did this. And you are exactly right. The way the money gets appropriated and when something's designated as a capital expense versus a, an operational, maintenance. a maintenance mm-hmm. expense, it's different pools of money. It's different state formula. When you build a synthetic field at a New York State high school, New York State is generally subsidizing that between 68 and 83% on the dollar, 83 cents wow. on the dollar. So the local share becomes very low. And if you have a reserve account or you're able to throw any budget excesses into a reserve account, a lot of times they maintain them for construction and that makes it very easy to just put the rug down and in eight years I'll get I'll figure this out again versus, hey, Play the field, manage the field good, put the lay and play down, get yourself till the next year. Even maybe you could use it in the spring, depending on how you did it and what it needed to recover from. Again, if you've got a diligent workforce or a dedicated field manager of sorts, or at least a janitor that when the weather's nice becomes the sports turf manager, I don't presume to know how school districts to do it, but you're exactly right. All of those ways. Yeah, they need knowledge and they need to rethink the way they allocate these things. And so... We got to wrap up our second segment, Andy, and we've already gone through (laughs) two thirds of the show. I'm with Andy McNitt at Penn State University. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. We'll be right back. Finally, a fungicide that's so much more. 
Civitas Turf Defense is a fungicide, insecticide, and plant protection product that will change the way you look at turf management. Civitas Turf Defense works within the plant to control diseases and pests, reducing requirements for fertilizers and other pesticides. By enhancing stress tolerance, Civitas Turf Defense can reduce water inputs by up to 25% while maintaining acceptable turf quality. Civitas also increases abiotic stress tolerance for improved tolerance to wear and traffic. And with no known resistance issues, there's no worry about maximum yearly application restrictions. Civitas Turf Defense, plant protection redefined. There's more to the story. Visit CivitasTurf.com. Golf course superintendents all agree. Traditional core aeration is time-consuming, labor-intensive, and unpopular with golfers. Dryject is a revolutionary service that relieves compaction, increases water infiltration, improves gas exchange, and amends your root zone all at the same time, leaving the turf surface smooth and immediately playable. Best of all, an independent Dryject service professional does it for you, there and gone before you know it. Dryject. The only process in the world that aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass. Visit dryject.com to locate your nearest dryject service center. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. We will be wrapping up our conversation that I'm fairly sure could go on for the next week about these incredibly fascinating topics with my friend Professor Andy McNitt at Penn State University. Andy, Really what got me to sort of invite you from the get-go was uh, this past year you were an author on a paper in the American Journal of Sports Medicine that came out that was probably one of the first. I mean, there were others, but I do think this work you've done with this collection of scientists, including Professor Kent that you alluded to before from the University of Virginia, the title of the paper is Higher Rates of Lower Extremity Injury on Synthetic Turf Compare with Natural Turf Among National Football League Athletes. I don't need to say anything else. So this was a nice uh, many-year study, four-year study uh, from injury surveillance. Uh, just absolutely, I think, one of the more important things we've seen in a really long time. Talk about the genesis of it and uh, what it was like working with a team of people who don't know anything about growing grass. Well, first of all, the team of people... I'm the dumbest guy in the room, right? So <laughs> you're sitting there, and it's like, oh, hey, I'm the grounds guy. I just wave. I'm the I'm the guy who takes care of grounds. Right. So um, great team of people, great people to work with. The league was very supportive of this research, and they've been doing it for a number of years. All right, this is not the first time that they sort of compared synthetic and natural. What's unique about the study, though, is it's the first time since we've instituted this game day testing. The beauty of it is, is we have control of those fields. We know the characteristics of all those fields. And so there's somewhat of a standardization. We know that they're getting very, very high quality maintenance on both of them. And now we can make a comparison of really good synthetic and really good natural. Let's see how they they work out. And and there was... uh, you know, the very conservative number over all uh, lower extremity injuries was there's 16% more injuries on synthetic than there were on natural during that time period. And the other interesting thing is, is that, you know, they looked at individual injuries from the hip the whole way down to the toe. And what happened was they found that that difference between synthetic and natural was larger the closer you got to the surface. 
right? So the toe had the greatest separation and the hip had the least, and it sort of followed right down. Hmm. And that, from a biomechanical standpoint, I've been told, I don't know, but that makes sense, and it sort of validates the thing that it actually is the cleat-surface interaction that's causing that because the hip, there's more places for it to adjust, right? There's all kinds of places where things can adjust till, a, till that force gets up to the hip. And with the toe, there isn't much because it's right there at the surface itself. So before I talk a little bit more about the study, I want to step back because you also published some work years ago looking at the volume of rubber. And you talked about that uh, a little bit earlier. That was important work as well, right? Because this data is good because I got to believe you feel like, as you said earlier, this is as good as we're going to manage fields, right? This is Close, these, yeah. these are the targets we're setting for these groundskeepers at the highest level right, to produce for their athletes. So you're you're sort of taking the noise out of the field issues, right, that was there before. And yes or no, your infill work informs some of this work, right? Yeah, so I think if you're talking about depth of infill, is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah. depth of infill, yes. Sure, so depth of infill has to be measured on every field. But, you know, there's a couple things, and we're trying to parse out now, you know, what is it about a synthetic field? Are there differences among the synthetic fields? 30, 40 different parameters trying to look at each of those individually. But depth of infill is one of the biggest things that a high school can do to improve that field. One, it makes it last longer because there's less what we call reveal. Reveal is the amount of fiber that sticks up above the infill. Mm -hmm. The more reveal you have, the quicker that fiber is going to break down because of UV exposure. Mm -hmm. So not only are you going to make it likely more safe for the athletes, but you're also going to make the field last longer by keeping your infill up. So this should be a standard procedure. You can go buy a $15 fireproof depth gauge, turf tech. Mm-hmm. John Mascaro sells yep. them. Yep. And it's real simple. You walk around and you measure these depths. So I've got a on my website. Mm-hmm. You can go in there and get a spreadsheet that tells you where to measure and fill it in. But you should really measure kind of everywhere mm-hmm. and tells you whether you're in compliance or not and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, absolutely. Keeping the depth of infill up, uh, one, will make the field softer mm-hmm. and two, make the field last longer. So it's the number one maintenance issue that should be done on synthetic turf in that, systems. That's absolutely perfect. And so back to the study and the discussion we had earlier about divoting. So now you've got this data that's really highlighting the shoe-foot interaction. And you're saying that, you know, the question is, is that the reason? Now, you know, I'm asking you to maybe put two things together. You, you think that's the reason you're seeing this data that... The synthetic system just isn't giving like a natural system. I know you allude to it in a number of your conclusions. Or it's alluded to a number of times in the paper. But there's also a lot of studies that have looked at a lot of different things. I want to make sure that people know it's not just this study. There's other studies that have conflicted with this uh, to a certain extent. But again, this is best because of the field. Do you think some of the differences are related to that give? We don't know the answer to that. So if you're looking at lower extremity injuries, we kind of have a theory that maybe it's the amount of fiber above the infill, right? So if there's more fiber above the infill when the cleat interacts, it's interacting with all that fiber and kind of pressing it down into the infill and causing traction differences versus if you keep the infill up, there's less up there to interact with, right? Mm -hmm. But that's a theory at this point. What's going on now is Richard Kent at UVA, and we have a team that sort of advises him. They're trying to parse all those things out, looking at stitch rate, face weight, number of fibers, thickness of the fibers, how much reveal, how much infill. Does the infill change? You know, can we go with a finer infill versus a coarser infill? What's the sand to crumb rubber ratio? 
and on and on and on, whether it's a monofilament or a slit film, there's you know 20 to 30 different parameters that are being evaluated individually to see which of those is causing this higher traction and whether or not there can be some adjustments made. But that is kind of in its infancy, mm-hmm. uh, and the results are kind of a ways away yet. But um, yes, we're looking at all of those things currently. Well, what I really like is that you know, you're knee-deep in this <laughs> enormously controversial issue, which is what I love about uh, being able to work at a land-grant institution like we do, that we sort of, if everybody's a little bit aggravated with us, I feel like I'm doing a good job. So I imagine <laughs> this creates a bit of tension in and amongst the audiences you work on. But and, and so that's the one part of it. But what I also like is that, you know, you're sort of taking the natural grass angle. And, and just like synthetic turf has the weakness of maybe not giving uh, the way natural turf does, uh, natural turf doesn't hold up the way synthetic turf does. And what you seem to be doing there, Andy, is saying, well, maybe we taught you wrong. Maybe sometimes you grow it as long as you can and then you throw your hands up and you bring in a, you know, a new field and, and we make sure you can maintain that playability and we can make that natural grass system over time do the same sorts of things, uh, you know, provided drainage is good and light, I mean, all the things we know have to work for a, a natural grass field. I like how you've approached them sort of, you know, you're looking at how to make synthetic turf better and you're looking at how to make natural grass better. Was that your intention all along or did it just sort of happen because you always had your foot in natural grass? Well, no, I think it just, it, you know, that's the goal, right? I mean, I don't I don't have a religious fervor for or against synthetic turf or for or against natural turf. Obviously, all of my degrees and all of my interest was in growing plants. And so, you know, sure, I tend to lean that way. But the goal for me from the beginning was always let's provide the best possible surface we can for the athletes so that they're safe and the fields are playable and tertiary is that they're attractive as well. So, yeah, I've never been caught up in that. But, sure, I've taken a lot of heat. And like you say, if both sides are yelling at you, you must be doing something right, right? Yeah, but if your predecessors and mentors, uh, Waddington and Harper, you know, said that that 20% is the injury rate and, boy, they're going to start certifying fields. If you had to project out 20 years as we wrap up, I'm hoping one of the things I know I see is just more recognition that these fields require particular maintenance. And if you want work done on your plumbing or electricity, you got to hire a certified plumber or a certified electrician. It would be nice if one of the things that develops in 20 years is you got to have a certified sports field manager if you're going to have these sports fields. I think that would be awesome. Uh, I, I like that idea and give them the resources that they need. So I think there is greater awareness that the surface is an injury potential or safety potential part of the game. And so I think that awareness is spreading. So I would hope in the next 20 years, people realize, look, if athletics are important to this high school, you know, we need to invest in the field. And I think what they need is direction on how to invest. I don't think they're afraid to invest, but I think that they have poured money down the drain, so to speak, right? Mm-hmm. And then the drain didn't work very well. It clogged up and the field really wasn't any better. And so they throw up their hands. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think there's education needed at that level. And I would hope that there's an awareness that's created that, you know, hey, we can make these fields better. We can make them safer. We just need to invest wisely and smartly in these. And the idea of hiring people who know what they're doing and are well-trained certainly would go a long way. I mean, 
years ago when I first started getting involved in the NFL, and I still believe this today, they're like, how can we prove these fields? And my number one answer <laughs> always was, make sure you hire good groundskeepers, exactly and then the problem right. will take care of itself to some degree, right? Yeah, I mean, that, right. that was the low-hanging fruit. Yeah. You get guys in there that know what they're doing, and those fields are going to get better naturally. And I'm not taking the credit for laying place odd, and I'm not taking the credit for any. These things developed mm-hmm. because groundskeepers began to demand it. And we all worked as a team to try to help the sod farmers figure that out, but most of them figured it out on on their own. Everything's a team effort. We're all kind of pulling in the same direction, and hopefully we'll get safer and safer fields as time goes by. Dr. Andrew McNittis, the director of Penn State Center for Sports Surface Research, program coordinator of the Turfgrass Science Education Program, and recipient of the 2014 Dr. George Hamilton Distinguished Service Award. And having known George, I'm sure he would be proud. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dryjack, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass, and Intelligrow, makers of Civitas, a fungicide that's so much more. Frankly Speaking is recorded and produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca, New York, by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to program manager Eleanor Geddes, marketing and business management John Kiger, and executive producer Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.